Greg, for that fantastic worship. I, I hope that you are um, as excited as I am about this upcoming change in how we're doing Sunday services. It's been a long time, hasn't it? And I just want to thank you for uh, persevering, for uh, going through this time together, uh, continuing to meet together as, as Hebrews 10 encourages us to do. And so God bless you for your faithfulness. And I hope that we'll all be rewarded with um, just the, the chance to be able to be together and to, uh, and to enjoy fellowship and worshiping together live. I think it's going to be fantastic. So uh, let me tell you as we transition to the service, uh, to the sermon, what, what this sermon is about. It's kind of a one-off. We're going to be beginning a new series next week on, on relational habits relational practices and uh but this week we thought it was important as we're starting to meet together as some new um injunctions from the the government are, are coming in it's important that we talk about how to respond to the government to the health crisis that we find ourselves in what's a a, a biblical response to this. And so we're going to be talking about the title of today's sermon is Truth Intention. And we want to be able to look at what the Bible says about what an appropriate response would be to this kind of time that we find ourselves in. You know, this pandemic has been trying in all kinds of ways. Uh, physically, we I was just talking to a pastor friend of mine in California. One of his uh, key members of his church just passed away. Uh, incredibly tragic and just to hear the story I mean it's just so difficult those of you who work on the front lines that you're facing physical tragedy pretty much every day that you're at work and uh, we're praying for you we're praying for strength and encouragement so there's a there's a physical dimension to it there's also an emotional dimension to it where uh, as we've already said it's just it's hard to endure uh, there's so many dimensions to this, the fear of it, the, uh, the isolation, all the question marks. What does this mean for the future? So there's lots of, uh, there's lots of, of emotional um, stress that we're feeling. But what we want to be able to focus on this morning is, is there's also some, uh, some spiritual stress, if we can call it that. And uh, we want to be able to look at this spiritual dimension and examine how this is affecting us and how we're to respond. What we find is that there seems to be two basic uh, biblical values that we find ourselves in tension with. Now, I'm going to be going through lots of scripture today. And so what I would encourage you to do is to take some screenshots and then to, uh, to look up these Bible verses, because I think that there's no replacement for you to be able to study God's word directly in order to know how you're going to personally respond to the things that you hear today. So what we want to be able to do is look at these two, I mean, it's, it's far more complex than this, but just it's, it's only a, a short sermon. So we're going to look at two kind of um, uh, different, two biblical values that seem to be in contrast with one another, that reflect how we might respond to the pandemic that we find ourselves in, even if we consider it a pandemic. We're calling one side practical and the other side prophetic. 
And so let's just go through some scripture verses that support both sides of how we could respond in this time. Looking at the practical side, in Matthew 22, 39, it says this, love your neighbor as yourself. I think the primary response that we need to have as Christians is to stay in love. This is going to be easier said than done, and we're going to get we're going to talk more about this in a minute. But I pray that we would be a people that reflect the primary concern of Scripture, which is to love God and to love our neighbor. This needs to be what guides us. Now, if we simply look at that verse, we go clean and simple. We just do what's most loving. But then the question becomes, what's most loving? Well, there's kind of a prophetic side that sheds some light on this. Revelation 13, verses 16 to 17. This is what's described in the end times. Now, I, you'll, you know, we can read this and kind of roll our eyes and go, well, that's the end times. And, you know, I don't think we're there yet. Well, Paul described us as living in the end times when he was alive 2,000 years ago. So we're living in the end times. And here's what's spoken in Revelation 13, verses 16 to 17. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark. Again, do we, can we buy and sell without having a mark? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're not there yet. But how, do we, how does a society get there? Well, it starts a lot more innocently, doesn't it? And so over time, more and more restrictions are put on people less and less freedom is, uh, is experienced, and we end up in that kind of situation, which is described as the Antichrist ruling the world. So are we there? No, we're not there. But how would we get there, and do we have eyes and ears to see what's going on in the spiritual realm and how to appropriately respond at this time? So those are two tensions. One is just love your neighbor. Don't, you know... You don't even have to think too deeply about it. Just do what's most kind. And then the other side says, well, there is another thing going on in the spiritual world that we, we need to be aware of. And it would be unloving to ignore that. Let's do another one. On the practical side, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This is one of the most popular verses in the Bible. And it's true that God loved the world. We talked about... Uh, Last week, where the world is not kind of just some neutral statement of a, of a physical reality. It's actually a spiritual uh, reality where God loves people who actually are opposed to him and hate him. That's who God loves. And if we're to be, if we're to practically love as Jesus does, then we go into difficult and dark places and we love people who even disagree with us. But then in 1 John 2.15, it says, do not love the world. This is on the prophetic side. Do not love the world. So, okay, which is it? Do we love the world or do we not love the world? And then it goes on. Ephesians 2.2 uh, says, there's a ruler of the kingdom of the air. Look, this is what we need to grab hold of. It is easy, I think, in Western society to think that the... Uh, the government, the world that we live in, is mostly neutral. Sure, there's some, some bad, you know, people in other countries and, 
they're tyrants. But we live in the West. We live in a democratic society. And everybody's on the up and up. And so what we see here is that there's more going on than just people making free decisions, what's always best for us. That there's actually a demonic presence, get this, in Vancouver, in our own hearts, in the hearts of politicians. Uh, there's, there's, an there's an evil agenda that's being advanced in the world today, and we would be naive as to think that that, doesn't, that isn't true or doesn't exist. We need to be aware of that. Now, as soon as these words come out of my mouth, this is how I feel. I'm one of those crazy people. I'm one of those people who is seeing demons around every corner, and uh, very quickly, I'm going to be a conspiracy theorist. And so, uh, forget a pandemic. I feel like that as a Christian. When I walk into a, into a moment with somebody who doesn't know Christ, and I talk about angels or demons, they go, all right, <laughs> okay. I mean, you're entitled to your own opinions, but you're just a little weird, and I am, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that I can go on, uh, you know, I can track with you on all that stuff. That's just, uh, that's a little too extreme for me. Uh, we need to grow comfortable with the fact that if we stand for Christ, we will look crazy in the eyes of the world. It's interesting that in the first century church, um, first century Christians were described, the word that was used in society, they were described as atheists. What a strange title to give Christians who are God-believing people. Well, what society observed was that all the Christians weren't participating in the public festivals that were part of society at that time. And all of those festivals were spiritual in nature. Whether they were worshiping Caesar or some other god, it was expected that everyone would participate in these activities. And so Christians didn't do that. And so the people assumed, well, if they don't believe in our deities, and these are the only deities that are really worth believing in, then they must be atheists. They must not believe in anything. <clears throat> And so there was a stigma that was attached to them because of what they believed. Unless we as Christians are willing to look crazy, hopefully we're not, uh, we can't follow Jesus. I remember there was a, there's a it was a, a VHS back in the day. One of, it was just a favorite talk that was given by a guy named John Wimber. And the way that he came to Christ is that somebody was, talk about crazy. Somebody's walking around uh, in L.A. with a placard front and back. Like already you ignore that and think it's funny, you know. But a placard front and back. This is, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? John Wimber talks about seeing that and thinking the guy was crazy. And then went through a difficult time in his life and realized, I've been my own fool. And I need to sacrifice my life and give my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the reality that you and I as Christians, forget a pandemic, you and I as Christians have to grab hold of, is that we're often going to look foolish in the eyes of the world. Let's go again. Let's look at another one. Romans 13.1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. So uh, 
scripture is super clear to obey the king. It's just, it's, it's unequivocal. We are to obey the king. And the reason why we obey the king is because God actually put that person in power. He can remove them anytime he wants, and he puts them in power. Do you believe that? Think about our government officials. We think it's all democratic, don't we? But scripture teaches that nobody is in a position of power without God somehow ordaining that. And because he's behind it, we should obey that authority. Well, that's pretty radical. And then, so that's clear, right? And then along comes Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than human beings. Like, which one is it? Again. Like, are we supposed to obey or not obey? Well, welcome to the complexity of Scripture. These are the tensions that we wrestle with in a time such as this. At what point do you and I say, we will not obey the governing authorities of our land? What's the line? What's the magic moment where we believe that it's violating God's word and we stand against human authority. We're going to get to that line in a minute. Let's look at another one uh, on the practical side. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Uh, it, it, you look at this verse and it's peace at all costs. It ju it's just practical. D don't Get so convinced of your point of views that you become a divisive person. Just get along with people. I mean, this is the practical side. Just love people. Just get along with people. Just be kind and generous and merciful and compassionate. Like, why complicate things? Well, Scripture does it for us. 1 Peter 4.16 says, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. There's going to be times when... Uh, society is going to oppose us and we will not be able to walk with those who don't believe in Christ. That's just true. It's equally true. Now we see an example of this in Acts 13 and then in Galatians 2. These are two practical and prophetic um, instances. In Acts 16, Paul wanted to take Timothy along on the journey, so he circumcised we can insert there, just for the sake of today's discussion, vaccinated him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So we see Paul signing up, in a sense, for a vaccination. Now, Paul knows, it, now we'll go back to circumcision, Paul knows that, that, is, that, that is the, that's the Old Testament law. He's going to be, we're going to read in a minute, how against he is that people would be circumcised for religious reasons. And so uh, he's super clear that that is not necessary under the new law. And then he tells Timothy, by the way, I think you should get uh, circumcised because we're going to be, uh, uh, you know, people know we're going to be talking to some Jews. They know that you're a Greek. They might not hear you as well. And so he just practically compromises. And then... Same guy, Paul, Galatians 2, 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with Paul, was compelled to be circumcised, vaccinated, even though he was a Greek. So they're both Greeks, and they're both doing opposite things in the Bible. So, I don't know, should we end there and just say, God bless you, <laughs> you know, for figuring this out? I mean, this is tricky, isn't it? 
There's not some clear mandate that being biblical means. We live in this tension of being practically loving, but prophetically inspired. Let me just give two biblical scenarios, and then we'll try to uh, we'll try to work our way through what an appropriate response would be. Look at Paul being practically compromising in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, this is the story of, of Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, and there's some people in that church that say, if you eat food sacrificed to idols, it's like you're worshiping the idol. So don't eat that food. You're buying into a demonic system that you, you know, we can't tolerate. It's, it's compromise. And listen to what he says in response. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 and verse 12. You can read more on your own if you, uh, if you feel so inclined. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your right. So, so there's another group of people that says, no, it's not. They sacrifice to idols. I'm not sacrificing to idols. I'm just hungry. Like, I just, I'm, I'm happy to eat this food, and it doesn't symbolize anything to me, and I, I have the right and freedom to eat this. Can you see some of the parallels here to what we experience today? Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. There's something going on here that Paul says, there's a way to stand for truth in a way that violates truth. There's a way to stand for truth in a way that misses the point and makes it about being right instead of about being loving. And the Bible consistently describes love, uh, describes truth as a description of love. That there's not some other kind of truth out there, biblical truth, that isn't about being loving. And so Paul says, look, you might have some opinions on some, uh, you know, some things that are going on in your church or in society, but I compel you to be motivated by love and how you behave. You can have your opinions on things, but at the end of the day, don't violate somebody else's weak conscience in the name of you doing what you think is right. No, you offend Christ if you do that. That's being practically compromising. And of course, we also see Paul being prophetically confronting. In Galatians chapter 2, in verse 11, this is Peter comes and he, uh, he, he knows that he's no longer under Jewish law, but he starts to eat with the Jews and only eat what the Jews are eating. He starts to separate himself from the Gentiles inside of the church. And so this is what Paul does. Paul calls Peter Cephas. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So, he says, look, this is wrong, and you can't do this. This is against the gospel. And he stands up for the truth, because the truth is most loving. Again, what do we do? Well, which do we do when? Here's two things that need to be said at the, out front, at the outset. Um. People who tend toward one, toward practical truth or prophetic truth, neither are stupid. Now, maybe that's obvious. Uh, maybe it's not obvious to you. 
I listen very carefully to people who are more on the more prophetic side and people who are, and both people are wise, thoughtful, and are, try, at least in our church, are trying to do what's right. And I commend people for prayerfully working through an appropriate response to the government injunctions and to what, how we're to respond to those. I, uh, I commend you for that. Our church, the Christian church, will quickly disintegrate if we start labeling people who don't agree with us as stupid and idiots, ignorant. One of the things that I am so grateful for every nation globally for is that every nation has this amazing ability to be able to hold things in tension with one another and not divide unnecessarily. And I pray that we have the grace to do the same. So there's reason on both sides, solid reason, contradictory reason. And there's also fears on both sides. Here's where it gets tricky. Some of the fears, let's say that the, the, the fear of, uh, of people who think we should all get a vaccination. There's a fear, there's a physical fear that we or our loved ones or innocent people could die. That's a, that's a legitimate fear, is it not? It's a legitimate fear. And it's a fear that could cripple us and blind us. Because there's something bigger going on than just physical death. There's act, can you believe it? But the Bible teaches there's something worse than physical death. We can have a legitimate fear get out of hand. On the other side, we'll talk about people who are nervous about getting vaccinated. What's the fear on that side? This is a slippery slope into, uh, into the loss of personal rights and freedoms. Well, that's true. And we can be afraid of that. And we should be afraid of that. But if that fear is our primary motivation, we end up dividing against others unnecessarily because it's not the primary thing that we should be afraid of. Governments are not the primary thing that we should fear. We fear God Almighty and his authority over our life is our primary fear. And when a fear of becoming a, uh, you know, a totalitarian state overrides our fear of God, it's out of place. Now, people... Uh, but this is where it gets difficult because people on the vaccinated side say, well, I'm not that afraid. I'm just trying to be responsible. And the other side says, I'm not weird. I mean, I'm not, I'm just trying to defend the constitution. That's what you'll say, right? It takes personal humility and reflection to see when your fear is out of order and out of hand. And I can't, I can't do that for you. That's you coming before God and searching your own hearts. But we have to admit that there's fears on both sides, and those fears can take us into unhealthy places. So I would like to provide two recommendations at this time. Number one is order our truths. This is how do we navigate between being practical and prophetic without undermining either. 
the first thing is we order truths. 1 Corinthians 15.3 talks about this. It says, for what, I for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Paul is saying that there are some things that are of first importance and there are other things that are not. Of first importance, and he outlines two things. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There are two things that the church of Jesus Christ revolves around and stands upon. The authority of scripture and the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ being the son of God. Those are those we must never move on, move off on, because those are the foundation of our unity. It's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. We don't move off of that. Um, I was talking with people this week. If we say that 1% of this Bible is not authoritative, who gets to decide what the 1% is? And now the 1% is Lord, not Jesus Christ. Now this is 100% the word of God. And we can't move off of that. We can't move off of the fact that God exists and Jesus came as God to earth as a man. We can't move off of that. If that's not true, then Christianity, everything is, there's nothing that we can stand on. Now, is that theoretical for you? I don't know if it is. But these are the things that are in the center of Christianity. And as hard as it is for us to believe in a time like this, political opinions or um, safety concerns are actually not the main thing that we fight on and stand for. We fight and stand for Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. And as we do that, we begin to have wisdom in how to respond to things of secondary importance. Important, but secondary. So our stance is this. Uh, this was, is credited to Augustine, although I, uh, Richard Baxter was the first person who has uh, been credited with saying this. Uh, here's, here's what I would describe as our stance at our church. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, unity. We stand on God's word and on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we stand upon. In essentials, there has to be unity. And you and I have to fight for that unity. We have to fight for it, even though we have opinions on either side. We have to fight for that unity. And then in non-essentials, there needs to be liberty. There needs to be the freedom to choose. Christianity is founded upon free will, where we choose to submit to the Lord Jesus. If he didn't want free will, he would have set up his kingdom in a much different way. But we have freedom to choose, and that freedom needs to be kept intact. So people who don't agree with us, we need to give, a, give them the freedom to disagree and to still walk together in unity because of the essentials that are most important to us. And then in all things, charity, love. In all things, we're trying to be motivated by love. My friends, can this please be our maxim? Can this please be the thing that we grab hold of in this time? I just exhort you, Let's have things of first importance and then things of secondary importance. 
And if we start to exalt things too highly that are not of first importance, we will divide unnecessarily and defame the name of Christ. So everyone has a line. Everyone has opinions. But let's only divide over biblical essentials. So here's my recommendation for point number one. Humbly need church diversity. If we're going to rightly order our fears, uh, sorry, order truths, we need to humbly need church diversity. Let's just lay the pandemic aside for a moment. Uh, one of the things that we've been talking about during the summer was the fivefold ministry that inside of the church there's apostles and prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. And that if you talk to any one of those people, they're, if, we can, if we think of the church like a diamond, they're, a, they're a, a critical facet of that diamond. And only as we all work together can the beauty and light of the Lord Jesus Christ shine through the church. But it is not easy for evangelists and pastors and prophets to get along together. <laughs> it's difficult because they come, they approach life from a slightly different angle. We might, your bias might be to approach life from a very practical angle. Others of you, from a very prophetic angle. That's great. But as we begin to listen to one another and talk together, we begin to see that even though our side is incredibly valuable, it's not the only side that needs to be valued. You know, uh, I don't know if any of you watched this. Um, it was a special. I forget what it was on, whether it's Netflix or I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But we watched a, a number of months ago a documentary called The Social Dilemma. And what this documentary was talking about, and I think it's, it's quite obvious, that, um, that if you're on any kind of uh, social media, that as soon as you click on something that you're interested in buying, or a story that, that piques your interest, then there's an algorithm that the subsequent advertisements are going to be skewed to what you're already interested in. And so what they're saying is that this is actually polarizing people because once they pick a particular stance, then everything that comes into their new news feed reinforces that stance, and you're not able to hear the other side. This is terribly concerning. I love what Philippians chapter 2, starting halfway through verse 3 says. In humility, value others above yourselves, even their opinions. Wow. Wow. What if you valued another person and what they think above yours? That would radically change everything, wouldn't it? Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. One of the things that really uh, convicted us when we were choosing a place where to meet on a Sunday, is that we would somehow be able to value everyone's interests under the Lordship of Christ. This was a huge value for us, that we, weren't, we, we, are, we are going to try our best to not have Sundays being a point of division, but a point of unity. And so we're looking for a place where we can all meet, and hear me, Worship the Lord Jesus Christ according to his word together. And I pray that all the fears, all the reasons, 
that you might have for your secondary beliefs would be in submission to what is of first importance, that we be a people that worship Christ together. So what do we do? We proactively listen to, quote-unquote, them, whoever they are. I encourage you, find somebody in the church. Uh, go online and find people who don't agree with you. And listen with a sincere heart. And it will dramatically change you. One of the things, I'm a, I'm a small A academic. And one of the things that I'm responsible to do is always to hear the other side. That's what academia is, good academia. Is you, you ha because you, you can go down a rabbit trail and just everybody agrees with you and you feel so good about yourself. And then you realize that there's a whole other train of thought that actually would take you in a very different direction. And it takes humility to be able to listen to another side and value what they say and, and, and let that affect you and not just how to think of arguments to oppose it. This is how we will order our fears. As we order our truths, we order our fears. As we begin to hear other sides, we begin to let fears have their rightful place in our heart. I think of, uh, of Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. It says this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Uh, do not be afraid of viruses. Do not be afraid of governments who can kill the body. Both can do that. Don't be afraid of them. Uh, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Our fears get rightly ordered when we let the body of Christ minister to us. And we see what is of first importance. And we align our fears according to biblical priorities. So the first is to order our truths. And the way that we order our truths is by beginning to be in conversation with those who don't agree with us on secondary issues, non-essentials. And we begin to let ourselves be affected by that in humility in order to better reflect Christ. Secondly and finally, we walk in love. Galatians 5 verses 13 to 15 says, Do not use your freedom to indulge the, the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to this, and this is my plea. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by one another. The Bible is very clear in Ephesians 6 that our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. There's powers and principalities that have a very, very clear agenda to dethrone God and to divide his church. And I, I, I plead with you that we would join together in not letting the enemy win in dividing the church of Jesus Christ. I implore you, do not let things of secondary concern, valuable but nevertheless secondary, divide us as the body of Christ. Do, please, let's oppose the true enemy. And the true enemy is not uh, 
you know, a certain political party or uh, a certain health officer. No, it's, it's demonic powers. And this is who we oppose always. So what is the recommendation here? Well, is to practically love with prophetic courage. I'll say it again. We practically love. We're always motivated by love. But there will always in the church be a prophetic edge where we don't just love everybody and everybody's just fine and it doesn't matter what you do, that's unloving. If I'm a parent and I don't have courage to confront evil, I'm not loving. And so we love everyone, but there's a prophetic edge to how we love. In Ecclesiastes 7.18, it says, It is good to grasp the one, but not let go of the other. Whoever fears God, fears God ultimately, will avoid all extremes. Do you see how that's true now? When God is our first fear, then our other's fears find their rightful place in our hearts. But we need to hold things in tension. And this takes faith. Takes faith. It's, it's unnerving to, to not be in a camp. It always feels better to be in a camp, doesn't it? But we, but we need to have the humility and the faith to uh, hold things in tension and to choose love in the midst of that tension. So what does this look like here? First, it was proactively listening to people, truly listening, listening with your heart, not just to prove your argument, but truly listening. Here is to practically love. The Bible says that we're to love our enemies. Certainly, we should love the church. And so can we please set about wherever you find yourself in this spectrum at this time, can you please love? I, I plead love. And let your beliefs and convictions be in submission to love, God's love. So in conclusion, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 to 33. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, whether you get a vaccine or you don't get a vaccine, whether you're comfortable to worship on a Sunday or you don't worship on a Sunday, whatever, whatever you do, whatever you put in your body, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks, left-wing or right-wing, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. Isn't that a, do you see the humility in that? I'm trying to please everyone in every way because I only want there to be one dividing line in humanity between faith or not in Christ. Everything else I'm willing to work with because he is what matters most and our relationship with him is what matters most. For I am not, wow, for I am not seeking my own good but the good of many so that they may be saved. You know, one of the things that I, I, I've been reading is, um, is Martin Luther and he talks in great detail. It's easy to go online and look this up. He talks in great detail about our response, about uh, his response to the plague that was at his time. And it was it was so encouraging to watch somebody 500 years ago work out the tension of he says, "I am fully responsible to be with people who are suffering, even at personal cost." I'm a Christian. It's what I do. And uh, if there's medicine to take, take the medicine. That's what he says. I mean, I'm not, 
I'm not trying to say anything more than what he said. You, but he's, he says, I'm trying to be responsible. And if you need to go and go to a place that's safer, then go do that. But I'm going to stay and try to be as careful as possible. And I'm going to care for those in need and care about them even more than I care about them, myself. Can you see him wrestling through the tension of it? And so what I hope to leave you with today is not an answer as to whether you should get a vaccine or not. That's not my role. That's not what I'm responsible to do. I'm responsible to present to you biblical truth that before God, you wrestle through with and decide what to do. In the fear of the Lord, not in the fear of the government, not in the fear of even, even physical danger, but in the fear of the Lord. And so what do we do? We proactively love and listen. So in, cl in closing, can I ask, can we please meet together? Can we please fear God together and work these things out in humility? Um, when I talk to the diversity of our church, I'm blessed. This is a great church family. And I hear people passionate on one side and passionate on the other. And I hear Christ in all of you. And I am changed because I get to be with you. Can we have the courage to come together, to listen to one another, and to love each other in Jesus' name? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. And I pray that we would unite under him. That we would have unity in our essentials. And that there would be freedom in non-essentials. And we would be informed by charity all throughout. Father, I ask that the enemy would not win in the church, but that we would be united under you, worshiping and glorifying you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.